are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Ravi Howard. He is the author of two novels, Light Trees, Walking, and and Driving the King. Um, in addition to being selected a finalist for the Hemingway Foundation Pen Award, Light Trees, Walking won the Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence. Howard has received fellowships and awards from the Black Caucus of the American Library Association, the Hearst and Wright Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. His short fiction has appeared in Salon, Massachusetts Review, Untold Stories, um, Alabama Noir, and elsewhere. He has essays that have been in the New York Times, Atlanta, and Gravy, and he has recorded commentary and fiction for NPR's All Things Considered and Mississippi Public Broadcasting's uh, Thacker Mountain Radio. He has taught creative writing with the Hurston Wright Foundation, Callaloo, a bunch of other places, Bread Love Writers Conference, and he is currently an assistant professor in creative writing program at Florida State University. And we're going to talk to him today about working with the Lillian Smith Center um, as a board member, his kind of connection with Lillian Smith. We'll probably talk about Ernest Gaines and other stuff, too, I'm assuming. So it'll be probably a wide ranging conversation. So thank you for joining me. Thanks, Matthew. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, it's been I think I've been trying to get you on for a little while just to kind of talk to you, because uh, like I said, I haven't. Unfortunately, I haven't had the opportunity to read your books yet, but I but I knew you from actually winning the Gaines Award, you know, a few years back. I think we kind of mm-hmm. overlapped a little bit when I was at the Ernest Gaines Center. And then I came here and I believe Nancy and maybe Diane, Diane Roberts, who we know, and Nancy Smith-Victor, who was actually Lillian's niece, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of found out you're on the board here. So I was really interested in speaking with you about, you know, how you came to know Lillian Smith and how you came to get involved with kind of the center and the board. Cause that's, cause that's the best place to start. Yeah. Uh, well then again, thanks again for the invitation. I, um, I had some mutual friends with, um, we're just through some friends uh, who were affiliated with uh, Alexandra Schultes, who is uh, a niece of, uh, or a, a Smith family member. And who was on the board. And so through mutual friends kind of reached out and told me about the Lillian Smith board. Um, They were looking for more artists to be involved. So the great thing about that is just through that circle of um, people who are, you know, we could talk about this too, just like the idea of placemaking, the where this Lillian Smith Center is a place for artists to come. It kind of built on the legacy of everything from civil rights to having a camp for girls. So making that place both in society, but just like a physical place. And so I I kind of met people who knew about her through uh, my summer teaching where, you know, a lot of artists, colonies and residencies. So it felt really um, like a good connection point. So um, with that, I met Lil- uh, I met Nancy um, and Robert, may he rest. They were just always just great, um, a great spirit, great spirits and talking about that legacy. But in addition to like seeing something like the Lillian Museum or her her workplace like being preserved, there is this other workplace for people who are still, you know, writing, telling stories. So it was a great combination of preserving a legacy, but also kind of creating a platform where different artists were, you know, congregating and talking. You have privacy and community. 
So I guess for me, that was just something that felt like a great um, opportunity to be in and kind of seeing what they had to do, the hard work to preserve the land, to make it look like just from an environmental standpoint, how it was supposed to look. Um, but also having that conversation with Piedmont College and, you know, how do you find the right academic partners, archival partners, you know, kind of grant partners in order to make sure the space is having, you know, the longevity that it really needs and deserves to have. So. So I like the way you kind of talked about that placemaking and you kind of touched on it a little bit. And, you know, I'm assuming you've done a residency up there. You've at least been up there, I know, for board meetings, things like that. And you've kind of touched on it a little bit. But can you talk kind of about that that placemaking and that kind of feeling? Because you're from Montgomery, which is a specific place, too. And that place is full of, I would say, placemaking. Um, we both know, I mean, I, my work with Ernest Gaines, that is definitely placemaking in New Roads and Oscar where he, you know, lived. I, I, there's a sense of place and feeling that's different than the Lillian Smith Center, but that is kind of similar too. that, you know, there is a presence there. So can you kind of talk about that or maybe even your experiences if you were resident up there and you talk about being able to meet other people? There's only about two or three cabins, so it's not a lot of people, right, but it's right. it's also different from a larger kind of artist community where you may have like 10 people there where you have communal meals, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I um now I, I went very often because we stayed there during the board meetings. I never went as a resident, um, just because I didn't want to apply. You know, we had kind of talked about that. Um, but it just never I, I felt, you know, really good about kind of promoting it and telling uh, you know, getting other folks to come, but I never stayed, but I got a feel for it for the weekends when we were kind of making decisions about the board. And um, so one of the first things you see is the big chimney. So that's another thing, almost having something iconic there that harkens back to what used to be there. In addition to, you know, seeing the, the kind of nice rustic, really, I think almost like iconic cabins that you see there and the old saw blade that was used to kind of call people to dinner. So there were just those, and I think I write about objects a lot in my work and what are the objects that are helping to tell the story. So there was very much that um, and it looking like a place where the history happened. So seeing the photographs from back in the day, but also being in the space where the photographs happened, which I think is one of the challenges of anything talking about history to make it feel um, lived in. And I think that does match, like you said, I think exactly what Ernest and Diane Gaines did. It's like when you when you win the Gaines Prize, they show you Miss the Miss Jane Pittman tree. That's what maybe 300 years old or, or older. Um, and the idea of moving the old church to their house, because if it's just left to development, who knows what can happen to it? So the idea of creating a border around these places, finding the right partners, so they can tell the story of this is the church where Ernest J. Gaines went. This was the school that was also the church. So when you read A Lesson Before Dying, when you read any of his books where there's a schoolhouse, and also the fact that he had to leave and go to California in order to finish high school. So it's not just the place for him, but the place that, the places that he was denied. So maybe I think that's a big part of, you know, Lillian Smith and talking about civil rights and human rights. Like um, the placemaking 
seems a very simple decision and straightforward and it is, but it's also the idea of who kind of gets pushed out of place, um, kind of looking at Southern history. So I think it's, and, and that's why I was fascinated. It was, I was happy to see when you started working with, um, you know, kind of with both foundations, you were kind of, you know, very much attached to both of those legacies. So how do you preserve the archive? So what is an archive, what, what is an archivist need when they come to Lillian Smith? What is a writer who's working on a dissertation need? What is a journalist or a filmmaker? And even I remember them talking about, I think one of the conversation I had with Robert years ago when he was talking about the kind of cabins, say a glass maker would need there, or those kind of cabins that say someone who might be working with textiles. Cause I know I, if I remember correctly, there was like, you know, some textile artists from Georgia. Yeah, so it's so, like every, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Tommy, Tommy Scanlon is on our mm-hmm. board, is on yeah. the board now. And she's, she may have been on the board when you were there, but she's a, she's mm-hmm. a tech, she's a textilist. I don't know the word to right, use right. there. Yeah. She works with textiles. She's yeah. a weaver. Right, right, right. It's uh yeah. And, and like you would never, that kind of community, if, if you knew nothing about that, which I don't, but like being in community with either on a board or at the the way the conversations between artists or alumni of the place, you know, you are in conversation with people you never expected to be because they had a different medium. So that breaks down a lot of walls, too. You know, there, there was one thing there's a lot I want to touch on there, but I never knew the saw blade was used to call, I guess, campers or at least y'all to dinner. I just thought it was kind of a nod to, of course, her yeah. dad's. Um, you know, lumber mills down in mm-hmm. down in Florida. Mm-hmm. But it kind of makes sense that, you know, that's what it would be. You could just bang on that thing and hear it probably all mm-hmm. across that mountain. Yeah, because I think a couple of the, at least one of the board members who was a camper back in the day, um, I think remembered it. And I don't, I don't know how it started or how long it continued, but it might have been maybe kind of almost a musical improvisation from, you know, one of the counselors. And then it became... Uh, it became part of the tradition. Well, that that improvisation, I think, is important to her, too, because a lot of those things that came out of that camp weren't just hers. Like the plays that if you have the Lillian Smith reader, you read the mm-hmm. plays like Drums and um, The Girl or whatever the name of that title is. Those were collaborative plays. And I think that that kind of improvisational collaborative creation is good because drums came out of them just beating on drums basically and they started thinking about well longer history so if we have the african-american experience which is a i think a very complicated kind of piece having all these white girls do this this piece but i also think it's an important piece because they're learning mm-hmm. so it's i'm really conflicted about that piece in various ways but it was a piece that came up about collaboratively and i think what you mentioned there too about being in contact with people from different mediums it's kind of what those campers were doing too. And what arose from those different mediums, I think is, is important and how it impacted her, but also the other, the campers too. But you can see kind of her trajectory coming from that too. Yeah. I think when, and I think that's a good topic in those pieces that might be, you're still kind of thinking about it more contending with them years later. I think I always go back to something. Um, I had the, the pleasure of meeting Valerie Boyd, um, and, you know, just before her passing, there was a, a, an interview that ran that she did. And I forgot the publication, but she talked about her listening practice and how important that was as a teacher, as an editor. And so I think those kind of plays, it's, a, you know, who was in the audience listening at that time 
you know, and that kind of contending, like, as you said, listening and learning to what that meant. And that listening then kind of moves forward with them as they maybe go to another archive or they or making their own work or listening or reading or contending. And I think that was another thing about Lillian Smith. It was clear that she was a listener and a reader outside of her culture. And to see what that meant is academically and artistically, which is probably a radical idea for those who were, especially young girls who might've been teachers going into the world even before and after like kind of the Jim Crow period. Okay. Who is, we're listening to cultures outside of our own. So that, that inclination as an artist is, is good. And it kind of helps to break down barriers. So, you know, just like absorbing culture and seeing just like a conversation, what is the conversation that happens just maybe in an archive in addition to like the live kind of conversation. So, yeah. And I think that, um, that space to where it's not, I guess, a, you know, that kind of collaborative work wasn't going to New York publishers. It wasn't going to Broadway where there were barriers for things that might've been experimental and collaborative. So they had a place to develop before they became, you know, before you can get a rejection from someone who has a very strict sense of what is art and what's not. And so that thing about you're talking about going to Broadway. I mean, the th one thing I'm still fascinated with, I'm going to get to another question that I kind of had mm -hmm. from what you said, but she says that drums that um, Atlanta University, like wanted to produce drums. And I don't mm -hmm. know if that ever happened. I think I reached out to their archive and I didn't get anywhere with it. I need to follow back up with it. But they were interested in, in Atlanta University, HBCU, you know, in Atlanta, that they mm -hmm. were interested in producing it. This play written by these white girls up at this camp and Lillian Smith that's dealing with 300 years of the African-American experience. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really kind of interesting and important thing, too. And that leads me actually to this next question. You mentioned about Lillian being a listener and reading and listening outside of her culture, right, especially during this time. We just got finished. I just got finished teaching Killers of the Dream. And then I read Strange Fruit again for um, a book club. And one of the questions that kind of came up with the book club is, could she get away with this now? Um, I don't know if she can get away with it now. But the question kind of brings up this discussion, too, of a white author writing black characters specifically, because we know the William Steyer and stuff and all of that. Mm -hmm. And kind of my not argument, but kind of my um, position on that with her. One, like you mentioned, looking at the time period of when she's doing it. You do have African-American writers that we know, but you also have, and Diane Roberts' point, she basically says the same kind of thing in the documentary, and how Jacob's documentary. But the other thing, too, is looking at her bookshelves, she is informed by African-American thinkers, not just writers, sociologists, poets, artists, all of this that comes with the journal and elsewhere, too. So it kind of makes it she's a listener and then taking what she's learned, you know, out. And I think that's what makes her books different than something like Faulkner, right. Mm -hmm. or, or other white authors to me do that or, or Harper Lee. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think part of it is the journalistic function to some degree, because, and that's why I say it's like what the, the per permission audience, the, the permission argument, it's, very often as things happen in the world and we report on them, you are reporting based on what you understand and the questions that you are asking as either an essayist or a journalist. So because of that, um, 
that kind of breaks us think out of that idea of permission. You just were kind of close or either as a reporter or as a witness. Maybe it speaks to what, you know, something that James Baldwin said, and I hate to paraphrase him uh, in a difficult, I mean, uh, inaccurately, but in the documentary, um, I Am Not Your Negro, and in the book that came out, he has a section called Witness, and he just talks about almost witness as a point of view. But he was even talking about, I'm not a Black Muslim, but, you know, I'm writing, talking to Malcolm X. I'm, you know, going, I'm not a, I'm not a Southern activist, but I'm talking to them. So I'm a witness. So it's almost that point of view. I'm standing, kind of watching them as they are going through the world and I'm talking about their experience with them. So I think it goes back to the listening practice. So, and like Lillian Smith wasn't going into that moment as an expertise, as an expert of those, those people she was observing, but she was very much an expert in her culture and what the reaction, maybe a white reaction to race was. So she was speaking about her expertise, but she was listening to the expertise of others, I think. And I think that's the key. You mentioned mm -hmm. she was speaking to her expertise because Killers is all about her speaking to herself, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She's saying, I am writing this just as much for my. I wrote this for myself to figure out what this society has done to me. Mm -hmm. And you could read Strange Fruit like that, I would say, too, because mm -hmm. that's basically what's going on there. But Strange Fruit kind of ends just like a lot of novels do, just kind of on this note of well, what comes after, right? Um, mm -hmm. I'm always struck, well, not struck, but I, I think it's a poignant, and that may be the right, right word. It's a powerful ending, you know, one with that book. I want to talk about that, the next to last chapter, because it rem reminds me of Gaines, but that's another discussion. But in the last chapter of that book, after, after Henry's been lynched and Ed has left, um, the women, Bess, Nani, and Desi, wake up and just go to work. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't want to, but they do. Life goes on and where does the change come? So it's not a hopeful ending because they're going back into these spaces where the people or the people who are complicit in the mob lynching Henry are their bosses. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think she's very attuned to that. And that that ending kind of always gets me. But going to the gains thing, you know, that. Next to last chapter two in Strange Fruit is multiple points of view, essentially. I mean, it's a third person narrative, but she got, each chapter kind of deals with different characters. Um, but after Henry's lynching, she has that last chapter that that next to last chapter that goes through every character's perceptions and thoughts about what has happened. Right. So you go mm -hmm. through Tom Harris and Bess and Desi and Sam and every character has like a couple of paragraphs and mm -hmm. discussion. And it reminds me so much of Gaines and a lesson before dying that mm -hmm. I think it's after Jefferson's diary. It's been a, mm -hmm. it's been a hot minute since I've read it, but you know, there's that chapter that goes through everybody, the town's perceptions of the electric chair coming in mm -hmm. of what's happened. Right. And it's, it's very similar to me and there's other kind of overlaps. And I never know mm -hmm. if, I don't know if Gaines ever read Lillian Smith. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. I didn't ask him because mm -hmm. at that time I didn't think to ask him because I never read much Lillian Smith at that time either. Mm -hmm. But I'm really fascinated in these kind of connections of place and space with them and also these kind of moments because this other moment, just before I kind of ask a question or, you know, get your responses, when Tracy gets drunk and rapes not or attempts to rape Nani, mm -hmm. the narrator says he comes out of his body. He sees himself doing it. So he is, you know, displaced from his body. And he's looking down on him pushing her. 
to me, that is precisely what happens with T-Bob when he's attacking Mary Agnes and Audubon from Miss Jane Pittman. When he sees the past merge with the present and he comes out of himself because he doesn't want to do it, but he's disassociated from himself. And I'm just really fascinated and not just those two things. I see thematically a lot of overlap between these two Southern authors, mm -hmm. from different eras. Yeah, I think what it's good to make those connections too, because I think with that, the way that they both use third person and kind of move around, it's not, and you know, as much as I love To Kill a Mockingbird, it's not like an Atticus Finch who is the voice of everybody, which I think, you know, the Watchmen book kind of shook up a little bit where there is like a centralized voice that becomes almost an omniscient voice, right? Or almost like a character, a first person, a character who is essentially a third person, omniscient force of good. So the, I think those, the way that both of them moved around helps to show that, I think most importantly, there was a truth that the Black characters could not share. Even if someone who might have been allied with them or in a position to help, there was a truth that had to stay at home which I think makes it so poignant where, okay, they have to get up and go to work the next day. The idea of the trauma goes with them, but there's a voice that they leave at home because they have to go and operate within the, within the society. And I think that was something that also is helpful in the Lillian Smith work, the idea of what it means for a Black character to, to be a domestic worker is not narrowly defined and what their role is in that white home. And I think that's that's what happens sometimes. And maybe that's when the permission argument kind of, it's not the permission except it's like how the, uh, it's how those characters are portrayed in, in conjunction. So we saw that autonomy that they cannot take with them. that, that maybe not autonomy is the word, but we saw that voice or that clarity or that candor that they can have in a third person narration. That's much different than what they can have when they are with others. And I think that's, also good with gains because everybody know you know it's like in a lesson before dying everybody knew what was going to happen and i think of another book um albert french's book billy we know in the second chapter we know it's not going to end well and so i think there is something that they know and maybe this is kind of a stretch but there's a writer um caritha mitchell who's a uh a PhD professor, you know, I think at Ohio State, but yeah, she's book, at Ohio State. Yeah, yeah, living with lynching, and I the, think about the, the Ohio State. Yeah, yeah, Let's and get I, that right. I have to realize, yeah, they, I, I forgot they trademarked that. So, uh, yeah, and I think Dr. Mitchell's book is like about. I, I was kind of floored when I learned about these lynching plays, where, and I think this, like Gaines and Smith, are in that tradition. It's like the court's not going to give you the answers you need because the jury is pretty much set. We know what's going to happen. So the idea of people, the third person, the, the art gives you more of a fair hearing. So if it if it makes any sense, like a, a an omniscient, a jury of your peers is more likely to happen on the page with this kind of round robin translation, this round robin kind of uh, narration than it is. So that's what made the art and not the goal, but that's something that Jake Adam York talked about too when he was writing poems, 
He's like, he was doing research about people who were martyrs or killed during the civil rights movement. There was no birth certificate because you didn't have to have a birth certificate for a black person. There was no death certificate. There was no obituary because the newspaper and the courthouse were not your friend. You were more, and he was like, a lot of times a poem or a sermon or how somebody remembered them was kind of the public record. So maybe these books were operating in that, but still very fluid to be art. Well, that leads me to kind of two questions, because you mentioned mm -hmm. that voice they leave at home when you're talking about Bess and Nani. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was looking back over. She's very attuned and akin to the mask or the, mm -hmm. the mask that one would put on in front of a white you know, person. There's that scene early on where Tracy's walking around. And he comes across. I forget their names. I think it's Reverend Jackson and his wife, Rosanna. Right. And he's like, Reverend Jackson's not using his cane like that he used around white people. He's just, he's walking normal. Right. And mm -hmm. Rosanna starts talking to him and he's like, yeah, she had to switch. She starts off with her non-white voice and has to switch it. Mm -hmm. Like there is a direct kind of, again, this is third person, but there's a direct thing, but it reminds me too of when Sam, you know, the black doctor goes to Tom Harris at the end when he's trying to prevent the lynching of Henry and Sam, both Sam and Tom Harris say we are friends, Right. We are friends, but Sam is in a subservient and supplicant position where he's having to wait on Tom Harris to to acknowledge him. Basically, he's having to say, Mr. Harris, there's a couple of times where he says, Mr. Harris. And then at the very end of that conversation, before I think Tom goes to try and stop it, him and Sam, he says, you can change this, Mr. Harris. So if you're friends, why having to do that? Right. And I think that that. When you're talking about the domestic space and Bess and Bess and Nani and Desi and them too, I think she does that very well and importantly in there. And the other thing you mentioned too is that is the piece, is the work of literature, you know, the court where these things can be litigated in kind of an abstract way, I guess you would say, while you're not getting the litigation and the conviction in the real court, in the in reality. I mean, I guess that's the way to say it. And it kind of leads me to a question I asked students yesterday, because like I said, they're reading Killers of the Dream. She talks about banned books. She talks about all this other stuff. And she talks about art. And it was kind of the question of what's the role of art, right? And what and one of my students basically, I asked, you know, could art change things? And they're like, art can impact, but politicians change things, right? So it kind of gets that question, too, of what is the role of art, which is something that I think Gaines deals with through his writing. But Lillian definitely deals with in her essays and what that role of art is. Is it I don't think it's as simplistic as saying art is propaganda or art is just aesthetic like we would get in the Harlem Renaissance debates. But it's just kind of what is that role of art? And I like that discussion. You said that it's, you know, they provide you the answer that they provide you the moral answer that the courts in reality cannot give you mm -hmm. that I, I like that being part of it, but then can art impact change? I think that's, I, th I think art, and maybe this is coming from me as a historical fiction writer. It can impact probably remembrance more than anything. Um, maybe something it can, it's used to push back against the kind of erasure. Um, and all of this is, you know, it can, it can be fraught, but, um, 
I just think about how the idea of who gets an elegy and who doesn't. Um, cause, cause like you, and I think part of it is because there's a past that's I, you know, I was much later in life when I discovered the work of Lillian Smith and it was more after being invited to be on the board and kind of seeing this really rich legacy and why, okay, we don't know as much about Lillian Smith as say we do Flannery O'Connor, you know, and, and so those ideas of how we sometimes retrospectively or retroactively start to discover a legacy and that informs us. I think it's hard in real time. Well, I guess for me, if the, the impact thing is because of nonfiction, which is most of what's taught just from essays to academic writing, we can say the heart of liberal arts is to some degree an essay, some form of essay writing. So if that's the case, the idea of journalism becomes the archive that then becomes how we reassess history to some degree. So I think it's hard in the present moment for art to have a great impact. Um, if anything, it's there's a, a counterpoint or art can be the op-ed that doesn't appear in the paper. Maybe we could look, so with, with with news, with the ability to have news, the ability to have newspapers kind of shrinking, um, what we can consider fair or open or even journalism, you know, that space. So I think it's, you can see, even if it's very rough, even if it's refined, even if it's, I, I hate to say rough, but even if it's experimental, but that idea, all of those things are outside of what might be seen as traditional. So yeah, I know that 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 might be not totally helpful, but think about anything that be it jazz, be it bluegrass, anything that felt like too much of outside of a traditional centrist kind of a central idea of the art that was then eventually became accepted. Well, that's so, what I was gonna yeah, yeah. That's what I was gonna say too. I mean, you're you're expanding art within that conversation of journalism and nonfiction, mm -hmm. which I totally agree with, and all these other forms of art with theater, with sculpture, mm -hmm. with music, mm -hmm. with whatever too. But one of the things you said too is that you, as kind of a historical fiction writer, filling in the erasures or filling in, mm -hmm. you know, these absences. And I would kind of push back a little bit and say that we know how important those are. And I think that those do have an impact, especially on the psyche, but then, or on the reader and the audience, then the question is, what does the audience do with that? I guess is, I guess is where that kind of disconnect may come from is, does the audience push forward with it? Because I remember in the archives at the Gain Center reading about a guy, he was a white guy who I believe was a prosecutor, maybe a defense attorney in Jacksonville, mm -hmm. Um and he was talking about reading Alessia before dying and I'm paraphrasing it, but what kind of stood out to me was he said how much it impacted him. Mm -hmm. And then really kind of the conclusion was basically, yeah, you know, when my wife's shopping at the mall, I feel comfortable sitting on a bench next to a black guy talking about the Jaguars. That would seem like kind of, you know, like, are you really kind of getting what's going on here? Mm -hmm. Um, So it impacted him. Yeah. But did it, my question is, did it impact his practice? Did it impact the way he treated his clients or, you know, or fought for them? 
that's kind of my question, right? And mm-hmm. he's in a position where he could actually do something about the system that Gaines is actually writing about, right? So I guess that's kind of the thing. And I guess that, you know, art may not have that immediate impact, but I'm thinking about Morrison. I'm thinking about, well, yeah, Morrison wrote Beloved and mm-hmm. the Bluest Eye, sorry. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about Morrison and Walker, mm-hmm. you know, what Jesmond Ward's doing now. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about all that filling in those erasures and those stories. And those are just as important. And then the question is, what do we do with that history and information? And Lillian Smith is one of those too. Like like you said, you didn't come to her until you really got on the board. And I didn't come to her till around the time I got here, or at least dove into her. And the more I dove in as a white guy from Louisiana, so from the South, is like, yeah, why has she been erased? Yet O'Connor, who has her problematic you know, discussions of race. Why is she mm-hmm. the one or why is Harper Lee held up? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's kind of an important thing. And then what does it do when we bring her back into these discussions? Because she needs to be in the discussions with King. She needs to be in discussions with the civil rights movement because King said, I've read you for a long time. And it's finally a pleasure to meet you in 56 when he's starting the bus boycotts or when he's running. Up. So, I mean, she was impactful long before but we determined the civil rights movement to be the civil rights movement, at least, you know, within the chronological timeline. Yeah, I think, and maybe this is because the way that even the most progressive teachers, what they want to kind of get into the conversation, I think it's very... Can you back up real quick? You said... You know, you think it gets into what what the teachers, progressive teachers, want to get into the conversation. Can you explain a little bit? Because I think you're oh, talking about the canon, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking about the canon. Um, and because it's not in the most egregious kind of book banning, but there's always been kind of this limitation or, or limitation. So there can be one of each. So if, like you say, if, if it's Flannery O'Connor or if it's, um, or if it's Harper Lee, that's that's a certain kind of white writer that mentions race, but not the editorial content that Lillian well, Smith a, has. Yeah. It's a, you mentioned it's a gatekeeping. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you can only teach a certain amount of books within a semester. Right? Exactly. A certain amount that your students are actually going to read in a semester. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. And it's, and most, most, most students have not had like a strictly Southern literature class until they get to college. And like nobody kind of argues against that being in the South. So it, and it's one of those things, well, if you're, and maybe this speaks into the debate of what's being called like classic literature that people are fighting for in Florida. I'm like, don't you realize you're also limiting the number of white writers that you, that are necessary to the conversations, like even more contemporary stuff like Gilbert King, what he, how he writes about, um, kind of the racial strife, the equivalent of the Scottsboro case that happened here um, in Florida. So I think because of that, if you ration, if you come to one or, like you say, if there's one Southern book a year, one Black Southern book a year, um, once you have, or if it's always Faulkner, which is nothing wrong with that, but like in the way that um, Jasmine Ward has conversations about Faulkner, but then you have both of them kind of in conversation or Lily or Lucille Clifton, the way that she uses um, talks about Walt Whitman in her work 
if you had a full kind of thriving liter then you would have like, okay, this is King biographically. Here is King, here is Lillian Smith. Are we able, would a teacher be able to teach their both of their work? Okay, this is how they met. This is when King was arrested because he was driving her to a doctor's appointment. She had a broken leg. This is his friend. But like what, what's being, so some of the same things that we're trying to show with to Kill a Mockingbird, actually, kind of, these are some true stories that show some of those moments. And so I think sometimes representation-wise, if you have a book, you can say, okay, this is the Black book that we taught last year. This is the book about race, which then kind of dilutes things even more because it's like, okay, one or the other, either we'll teach a Lillian Smith or we'll teach a To Kill a Mockingbird, but To Kill a Mockingbird has that space, right? So, I mean... So I think maybe it's a bandwidth conversation, but a bandwidth conversation about, and maybe do we self-censor because we know if a teacher knows I got to fight for the one book I want to get. So I'm going to get the one that everybody's heard of. Well, there's, so, yeah. there's two yeah. things you said there. It's a bandwidth yeah. conversation. And, you know, I read, I started checking my reading a couple of years ago. Um, I was able to read like 80 books last year. And I read a lot of mm -hmm. graphic novels too. My wife okay. says those aren't books, but I'm like, yeah, they are. I mean, <laughs> yeah, Victor yeah. Lavelle writes, yeah. you know, he wrote Destroyer and everything. Anyway, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, which I taught. Um, but I mean, that's in conversation with Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, but the average person reads like one book or less than one book a year or sorry, right. four book, four books a year, I think is the average person, but that's averaged in with people like me who read like 80. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. most people read like one or less than a book a year. Right. 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 So unless they're in school, so when they're outside of school, they're not reading anything, um, reading anything. So that's one thing. The other thing, too, I think that's really important that you just mentioned is these conversations. One of the things I tried to do where I did when I did in the early American Lit Survey was the conversations these authors are involved with. Like David Walker writes back to Thomas Jefferson explicitly, mm -hmm. you know, in his appeal, he's quoting Thomas Jefferson at length. So we got to mm -hmm. read some Thomas Jefferson, right? Notes in the state right. of Virginia. Um, also other authors like Kant and everything about race, you mm -hmm. know, quoting that. So these conversation things are important. If we can frame these discussions around conversations, mm -hmm. like you said, with Jesmyn Ward and with Faulk and with, um, Faulkner or even Frank Yerby and Faulkner, like that's a mm -hmm. conversation or Gaines and Faulkner, you could do the black response to Faulkner, right? Right. Or the white response. I mean, we could read Strange Fruit in relation to Faulkner or her kind of response that didn't get printed to Faulkner's I think, editorial in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. So I think that framing it around conversations and even if you can't get to all those books, letting students know that these people are in conversation with one another, like we're going to do... um. Gloria Naylor's Mama Day for the book club, because I've been wanting to reread it. Another book club said they were going to do it. So like, okay, we'll just do that this semester. We're going to do mm -hmm. that in coming of age in Mississippi. One, and it realized she won the Lillian Smith Book Award for it in 1988. Mm -hmm. But anyways, but she's very much in conversation with, um, you know, Shakespeare mm -hmm. and other things too, but mm -hmm. and Hurston and Walker. So pulling those things out, I think is important and letting people know that, a writer is not solely a writer. They are in conversation with a lot of, with everything that they come in contact with. Just like you as a writer of an essay are in conversation with who you're responding to, but also everything that they've come in contact with and everything right. you've come in contact with. Yeah, and, and that response question is a good one because I'm thinking about, um, and it doesn't even have to be a response to someone who is, 
seen as like toxic or a bad actor. It was, you know, you like their work, but here's some, for instance, um, Albert Murray had a response to Faulkner when Faulkner was praising, or I think a, a eulogy, the eulogy he did or the remembrance of a black woman who raised him or worked in his home. And so when that happened, I think Albert Murray's response was, you may have loved her, but did you love her nieces and nephews who are in the streets now? Because I want to say it was sometime in the 60s. So it was like, this is a very particular response to this Black woman, but what about her family or her legacy? So it did. It was a challenge, but it was a challenge from someone who read Faulkner. You know, so it was, which I think sometimes in the way that the our political landscape here, it's like, oh, we're casting, we're casting out white writers who might have been in that space. But like you said, Lillian Smith was in conversation with so many writers of her time. So her archive, even just the simple fact that her bookshelf, like you said, you can see the black folks and the white folks, folks from around the world that she read, or as people like to bring up with censorship, most of the, I don't know if it's still the case, but when, when the Library of Congress started, I think maybe half of the books were written in English. So like we're in conversation with people all around the world or we're in conversation with different cultures. So if these libraries, if these shelves are segregated and this is what we see from the people who wrote from them, maybe that's too wide. the way that you're organizing. Um, the kids are reading uh, Killers of the Dream and Strange Fruit and how those books are in conversation with, with each other in a kind of way. So I think that's, you know, and that's another maybe part of the representation conversation. You'll see one book by each writer and we're not seeing how maybe they change over the course of their career, how they were maybe looking at the same question 20 years later, first time writer, you know, kind of iconic writer. So, Well, I mean, you talk about that conversation thing. I need to reread. I need to reread Chester Himes as if he hollers, let him go like soon mm -hmm. since I just reread Strange Fruit. Because when I read it initially, like I said, I didn't know Lillian Smith. And I didn't, probably didn't think about it. It's been years since I've read it. But there's a conversation in there between, you know, people about which does it better. Native Son, Richard Wright, or Lillian Smith's Strange Fruit. I think they come down on Lillian Smith's Strange Fruit, you know, talks about the issue of raising these issues better. And she's got a first copy of If He Hollers, you know, in the library. First copy of Their Eyes Are Watching God, all this stuff. So... I think that is a very important thing. And that thing too, you talk about the archives, you know, this semester I'm teaching women, civil rights, women, civil rights memoirs or women in the civil rights movement memoirs. I forgot how it's phrased, but I'm doing killers. I'm doing Polly Murray um, and Moody, which I am sad to say it took me years to read. It's been on my shelf, but I wanted to read it. And I read, it, I was like blown away by it. <laughs> that I think is one of the most powerful civil rights memoirs that I've read. And then um, Angela Davis, which I still haven't read yet, but I know that I want to end with Angela because Lillian is this white woman kind of at the beginning and Polly is is black. Um, and then end with kind of the shift to the black power movement. So I, I kind of framed it around that to disrupt these chronological kind of timelines we have of 54 to 68, right? Mm -hmm. But anyways, reading Polly, she mentions like Lillian like twice, right? Once is that, yeah, they paid us money to, to publish Dark Testament, now with something and then something else. And this is a 500 and something page book, right? Mm -hmm. But the archives show that they had a long standing friendship and connection. And 
during the sit-ins that, you know, Polly talks about when they were at Howard in the 40s, and Ruth Powell, who was one of the student activists who were involved with it, I just saw a letter. I think these are UGA, but I have Rose Gladney's stuff here. So some of those scans, there was a letter that Polly wrote t- telling her about the sit-ins, what happened in 43, walking her through it and saying, this is an essay by Ruth Powell talking about it. Those archival things I think are very important because even as something as big and as dense as Polly's Song in a Weary Throat, where she's covering so much ground and so much historical information, Lillian is left out of it, yet she was that Lillian was an important part of Polly's life. Lillian and Paula were, right? In any kind of discussion of King, you know, when I reach out to people who have done books on King and I reached out and um, Paul Kendrick and Stephen Kendrick. I, I interviewed Paul for the for the podcast about Lillian and King, but Lillian is a minor part of that story. I mean, that broader story is about King being arrested and then the Kennedys getting him out of jail. And then even I think the new King biography, right? She's mentioned like once or twice. The um, the huge massive I forget what they're called, but the huge massive books about the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. You know, probably a thousand something more pages. She's mentioned like two or three times, and it's really like, well, she published Strange Fruit, and then maybe something else. But she, but these kind of connections, and not just her, Polly, I think, is part of the story too, because Polly mm-hmm. seems to have been forgotten too. I didn't find out about her till a couple of years ago. It's all these people, like you say, who were very much involved and who have been, I won't say pushed to the side, but have kind of been forgotten because of how information travels and everything. And I think Ann Moody kind of points out an important thing, too, when she's talking about the March on Washington, she's talking about the civil rights movement, specifically the March on Washington. She is very, no, Polly says this, sorry. Polly talks about the March on Washington movement and other things, too. And Polly's very adamant about the fact that there are no women there on stage and very adamant about the fact that women are pushed to the side within the movement, right? Which is a critique we have of the Black Power movement too. But I think that that's a very important, you know, kind of narrative is filling in these spaces. And then where do you find the time to fill the spaces in is the other question too. There's really no question there, but it's kind of going off of what you said, I guess, a little bit. Yeah, I think... I think what what's there for me too is the the world of the big biopic. That's why what I love about maybe essays and things, or even like documentaries, like you all you 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 mentioned the, the Lillian Smith documentary. Um, there's a specific kind of learning and conversation that you can isolate, kind of in those moments that not necessarily like the big um, some of the bigger. PBS ones, you know, like the Kim Burns, but almost like the episodic that feel more like what a poem or an essay or a short story does. We can isolate some characters and really feature them. Because I think sometimes, and this is just from my limited kind of work within or knowing people who have written the big biographies, it's, there is even with the 500 or 1000 pages ones, there's a lot of the nuance can be lost a little bit. And and this is the way it was explained to me sometimes with, especially when I was writing about Nat King Cole, it was like almost I'm writing about the life that happened away from the microphone. And I think sometimes biographies feel very like microphone or stage centered. So the idea of when do I find out about Ann Moody? When do I find out about, say, 
Almina, Lo Almina Lomax and her writing. You know, all of these writers that I discovered much later in life were not the, necessarily the ones who were the big kind of names I learned first. So a lot of that is race, gender, queerness. Um, the idea of, you know, if there was SNCC, SCLC, there were like maybe 10 or 15 organizations, but you maybe start with the bigger ones first and work your way back, which I think I do the kind of writing or I'm interested in the stories where we are maybe in the smaller focus, those like conversations, like kind of Lillian and Martin Luther King Jr. in a car together getting pulled over by the cops. That that would be an episode of a show in the life of them. That would be very much, you could get a really dramatic two hours or 45 minutes in it, as opposed to looking at a biopic. And that might be, you know, like a quick scene or they talk about it, you know? So maybe that's, why I'm maybe a champion of the little books. Is that well the bit? You think that's the bandwidth thing too? And yeah, I understand maybe, when you're doing a biopic yeah. or you're doing a large biography, you have to get the information in there. Yeah. Well, I guess bandwidth. I guess by, bandwidth is very much a biased thing too, right? Who is willing to? Who sees a market in it? Um, who owns the story? And now it's now it's a totally different conversation. Exactly. Exactly. Um, even like somebody like. With Selma, Ava DuVernay talking about she couldn't use King's, she couldn't use King's speeches because they were owned by the folk who were going to do the biopic. So she had to write her own. So, you know, it's like the kind of people who might champion certain kind of story. And that was, I think, because of that, you got a lot of screen time for Diane Nash. I don't think I'd really ever heard like having an actress playing Diane Nash was a big deal having those kind of conversations in the movie. So um, seeing John Lewis arguing with other civil rights, you know, other kind of activists over strategy, that kind of gave you the room that a biopic would not give you. And so, I think that, mm -hmm. I think that that's important too, is we, we mm -hmm. think of these things as, you know, the, the Southern Poverty Law Center calls it the nine word problem with the civil rights movement is that people mm -hmm. know Rosa Parks, they know Martin Luther King and I have a dream, right? Mm -hmm. And even the I have a dream speech, they don't know all of it. I mean, we know that. Um, these kind of tensions, I think, are important. And that's that's one of the reasons I said, like, I like Moody is because she's she's directly challenged. She's like, yeah, at the March on Washington, mm -hmm. she says, we don't need dreamers. We need leaders. Mm -hmm. Like, that's kind of her takeaway from the March on Washington, partly. And I'm like. That's really, I think, an important thing from somebody who was involved directly on the ground in Mississippi, right, during that period. And then the way that book ends, I think, is very powerful, too, when she's, you know, talking. She's, like, going to give up the movement, basically. And then there's a bus. I forget. They're, they're going to Washington to talk to Congress or think or to a hearing. And the book ends with just these two sentences. Um when somebody asks, you know, if things are going to change or things are going to get better. And she says, I wonder, I really wonder, and really is in all caps. And to me, that undercuts a lot of the narrative that we hear about the civil rights movement, that things have changed and gotten better since the Voting Rights Act and since the Civil Rights Act. Because King, even himself, a quote that I always give from King, I'm paraphrasing here, in his um, A Testament of Hope, his posthumous essay that came out after he was assassinated, right, in 69. Um, the essay came out in 69. He was testing in 68. But he basically says a lot of whites try to congratulate themselves um, that we're past 
these issues because of the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So this is eight, four years after. And he's like, we're not, right? Mm -hmm. And it's because, and he says basically because, you know, they don't know the Black lived experience day to day. So he's, I mean, even him is saying, you know, these things have not changed with the passage of these of these acts. And we still know about the busing issue, the busing protest, not issues, the busing protest and all that stuff. And, you know, the early 70s, we know about the trajectory of the way things have gone. So I think these sanitized and these bite sized. You know, kind of talking points about this history is kind of the problem, too. Yeah, I think it. That um, example, I think, mirrors, I think that the Ann Moody ending, I think that's really poignant to think about her talking about, just I really wonder, imagine that somebody making a movie or a document, a movie about her life where it has to, you know, where they're more audience focused. That would be somebody would really have to fight to keep that ending. The idea of because it's almost like say is it a delivery system for a kind of congratulate a hope that's more of a closure you know that's a false sense of closure that something has been accomplished as opposed to something that is constantly going to have to be tended to the constant tending is you know, fatigue is not a matter because you have to constantly be tending to it. If there's an example, maybe it was for all of the reckoning, supposed reckoning of the year 2020 with, uh, you know, Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and, um, you know, just kind of, and George Floyd, thinking about that summer and everything that was supposed to happen where there, there was supposed to be dozens of LES centers or the equivalent at universities all around the company, all around the country, you know, just based on promises. Oh, we're going to create space, but then there was this feeling of fatigue. You know, we've done enough. So, I think what that kind of brings the Ann Moody kind of idea back into kind of back into focus, where it was a constant challenge. It's it's not delivering a thank you. It's not a th these these books were not thank you notes for what people had done in the past for what well, people had done. Yeah. I think that that comment of fatigue, I think, is 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 powerful and spot on because, I mean, Lillian felt fatigue, right? Mm -hmm. I, we were watching part of her in the 1962 interview with CBS or Miss Smith of Georgia. And she basically says, I don't want to write about race. You know, she's like, I'm an artist. She sees herself as an artist. Um, But she says, I have to write about myself. She also says in that same interview, when the person asks her, have you ever thought about leaving the South? She says... Yes, I thought about it. You know, I could have gone to Paris like Baldwin did or like others did. But she's like, I chose to, I wanted to stay here because I have to have that wound open. That wound can't close. So she's kind of, to me, talking out both sides of her mouth, which I understand. I'm with her. But it wears on you to do that, right? I mean, I've, I've talked to people about the bandwidth of even keeping up with the news. Mm -hmm. Keeping up with just, you know, what goes on. So you have to kind of find, I think, your spot kind of what I've come to because I've never been one in the streets or anything like that, but you kind of have to find your spot where you can actually take care of yourself and also, you know, take care of what needs to be taken care of. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think that fatigue thing is, is, is important because it's not just a, it's not just a personal fatigue. It's also a cultural fatigue. And especially with the new cycle that moves forward so quickly. 
Mm -hmm. right? Like Ukraine was two years ago. It's still going on mm -hmm. yet. Don't hear much about it. Right. right. Um, October 7th, you know, even that's kind of still there, but it's getting into the back burner a little bit. So it's kind of, how do you see yourself maintaining kind of not momentum, but strength through this rapidly changing situation, I guess. Yeah, and I think with with that, and the news cycle becomes a difficult, kind of a difficult idea because if, if you're writing about something and right now it feels very relevant and you're taking your time, as I think the writers were discussing is, Lindley Smith and others working on books, or it's it's almost a per it's a it's a cultural beat that you're covering, but not for a news organization, right? So from time to time there might be an alignment and people are really interested in what you have to say about this subject. And then a month later or a year later, they're not so interested, but you know the news value is still there. The story might be richer because you have so much more that you know about it. But yeah, I think it's um it's what exactly is the marketplace for the kind of work that we do, um, be it, you know, poets who are remembering civil rights icons, like some of the ones that I've read that might be about, you know, a Medgar Evers collection that I saw some years ago from Frank X. Walker or the collection that um, Rita Dove did about, um, among other, but mainly about Rosa Parks, but also Claudette Colvin and others. So I've learned to appreciate that kind of work that, you know, in the kind of the small spaces, even celebrated spaces, but that you might see those kinds of books, those kinds of poems. Um, but you also hope that they have a market that's not relying on lots of sales, lots of popularity, or being so apolitical that they might be missed by, you know, people who want to burn books i guess so so let's end on this i think this mm -hmm. is a good place to end because we've talked about erasure and how you mm -hmm. learn about people and kind of my question is this because this is how i view art this is how i view literature when i say that mm -hmm. specifically and i would also say art in general i wouldn't i don't want to say it's propaganda i don't want to say it's 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 meant to push change I want to I want to say that for me, art is a place to learn, and especially if you're talking about historical fiction, to learn about a history that I didn't know about mm -hmm. that is presented within that work of art. Like you said, the poems about Rosa Parks and Claudette Coleman. I think about Frank Yerby again, and I still got to read all his books. He wrote 33. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know, but mm -hmm. his second book, The Vixens, deals with reconstruction in Louisiana, right? And I'm from Louisiana, I'm from Bossier Parish. And then mm -hmm. there are these quick mentions. And he was meticulous with his research, right? And these are historical novels. And he was meticulous with researching and the information that he provided. And he talks about the Kofax Massacre, which I'd heard of, didn't know much about, but you know, heard of and knew about the historical marker there, the, the messed up historical marker. But then he mentions Bossier, which is where I'm from, right? And then digging into it. You know, I, I started diving in a little bit more, found out, you know, there were 120, 160 black men, women and children killed and thrown into the Red River and elsewhere. And it was basically voter suppression is what it was, you know, under the guise of something else, because this was the um, 1868 election, I think. 
And it was also the passage of the Louisiana Constitution. So they were they were electing that. And the Louisiana Constitution was pretty progressive um, for the period or very progressive for the period, actually. But, you know, learning about that and then going into that history. Right. And then learning about his book, Griffin's Way, I think, deals with Reconstruction Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So those kind of moments and they may be quick moments in the book. But those moments lead you down a whole different rabbit hole, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is what good art does, is it keeps you, again, to paraphrase Lillian Smith, she says, you know, an artist, or when when I stop learning, stop being a creative being, or when I stop learning, when I stop asking questions, it's time for me to curl up and die, right? I'm done. I think that's what art does, is it causes us to ask questions, gets us in touch with the human experience, which is what Lillian and Gaines and everybody like that does, but also educates us. It's an educational medium. Literature specifically I'm talking about here. Poetry, novels, whatever, short stories. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I've heard people say this, they have talked about a book and they've said, oh, that was amazing, or that was beautiful. And they almost catch themselves. And they were like, oh, well, the subject matter is really difficult. But in the way that it was rendered, this is what it delivered for me. And I think that might be a good marker because we're not just repeating what was in the news. There's all these different filters that we have based on our personhood and our culture, but also in how we are, whatever artistic voices we have. So all that difficult history has gone through the paces that we normally go to, to create, be it essays, plays, novels, um, you know, music. So, I mean, I think that's what the art does. So even as political as it may need to be at times, as historical it may need to be at times, it's still going through, you know, all of that it needs to go through the processing, you know, the very important processing that we do as artists to get it to to the market in a very specific way. It's the it's the human connection. That's what makes yeah. art endure mm-hmm. is the fact that it may focus on a specific time and place, but that it connects us with, I guess, existential things beyond our time and place, right? Mm-hmm. When you when you said that, and I know we're, we're Andy, but when you said that, about you know somebody saying this piece of art or this piece of literature was beautiful and moved me, but then also about the subject matter. To me, I just the bluest eye is an example of that. For me, that is a rough book. You know, the color purple. I just taught the color purple again. Like, it's a hopeful book at the end. There are beautiful moments in it, but it's very violent and sexual violence and you know racial violence. So I think that those and a love and dust. A Love and Dust to me is the best novel ever written. Mm-hmm. People are probably sick of me here and say that, but I think it's the best 20th century American novel ever written to me. Um, historical reasons, stylistic reasons, all that stuff, right? Yeah. Or even, or even or even Strange Fruit. I, there are characters I despise in Strange Fruit. I don't like the way she depicts Nani. I don't like the way she depicts Henry. Mm-hmm. But her writing is very good. Like every time I reread it, I hated it the first time I read it. This is my third time reading it. I'm like, her writing is excellent. Mm -hmm. She's an artist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't, yeah, I just kind of went, I feel like I've been going off on a lot of different things here, but it's making me think about a lot of these things that I've I've been thinking about for a while. So, um, 
I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate the I appreciate the conversation. Appreciate it. All right, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate and, it. And if you want to check out Robbie's work, you can go to RobbieHowardAuthor.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about living at East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.